You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So we're in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to focus on uh, verses 14 through 16, but I do want to read verses 10 through 20 for us um, so that we get the context. So if you would please turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Oh, Father, we ask that you would come and you would speak through your word to our hearts and our minds this morning. Father, I ask that you would come and by the power of your spirit, that you would just surround this place and fill this place with your very presence, God. I ask that you would remove any obstacles, any spiritual hindrances in this physical realm that we live in, and that you would help us to hear a life-giving message from the giver of life who conquered death. Pray, Father, that you would bring the love of Christ, the power of the cross, and the power of the empty tomb to bear upon our hearts and lives this morning. And we pray this, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I have a question uh, that I want to kind of get us tracking in the same direction together this morning. It's a question that you're probably used to hearing because I think it's a question that I ask all the time, a question that I ask often. When you walked in here this morning, what was your heart and your mind captivated by? Take a moment and just write that down. Might be one word. Uh, Might be just something that's really been bothering you this week, something you've been frustrated by. What was your heart captivated by when you walked in this morning? You might ask it this way. What was your heart and your mind even in bondage to as you walked in this morning? What What lies did you maybe walk in believing that have actually led you into a jail cell of doubt or a jail cell of worry 
or shame or despair or guilt? What is that thing that you walked in with that you felt like, this is a heavy thing on my shoulder that I walked in with? Because here's the truth. Jesus said that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And Paul follows that up in another epistle, another writing, another letter of his, that we have actually been set free to be free. We've been set free for the purpose of freedom. We're free if you're in Christ. So what is it that you walked in that you feel captivated by in bondage to? Is it a, a vocational goal? Maybe a relational hope or dream? Or maybe a sinful habit that you struggled to get past? Or maybe it's an experience of suffering? Or maybe it's a financial need? I don't know what it is that you walked in with this morning. But I believe that every one of us walked in with something that we need Jesus to come and speak into and set us free from. With that thought in your mind, I want you to take a walk down memory lane with me. In our study of Ephesians chapter 6, specifically uh, verses 10 through 20 over the last few weeks, we've learned that God does indeed call us to take a stand, right? We're called to take a stand in the strength of the Lord and in the protection of the Lord and in the right fight. We live in a spiritual war zone that Paul calls this present darkness. And we have a spiritual enemy named Satan. And Satan is a liar and a schemer and an accuser of God's children. He is a lion who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he has targeted you and I as public enemies number one. Satan's chief aim is to coerce you and I into believing lies. Why? Why would he want you to believe lies? He wants you to believe lies because when you and I believe lies, then what happens is we live in bondage. He is a liar and the father of all lies. He is a deceiver. There is no truth in him. He actually believes that the deception and the lies are true. That's what he actually believes. That's how deceived Satan is. And he comes to attack us. When we believe lies, we live in bondage. And when we live in bondage, the image of God in us is diminished. Satan Satan wants you to believe lies about who God is and lies about whom God says you are. And he wants you to believe lies about how you are called to live in this spiritual war zone called this present darkness. What we've learned is that the fight that we are in, in this realm, is very real. It's not fake. It's not false. It's not make-believe. It's not pretend. It's real. And the fight isn't out there against a physical or a political or a social enemy. The fight is real, and it's right here inside of each and every one of us collectively, individually, as a part of a whole, as a family, right? The fight is right here inside of us, and it's against our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Our heads, symbolically meaning what we believe, and our hearts, symbolically meaning what we desire and want. And our hands, symbolically meaning about how we live. These are the three areas of our lives that are constantly under attack in this present darkness. Uh, This is why the first piece of armor that we talked about last week is so vitally important for us, right? The belt of truth. It was the first piece of armor that we studied through 
last week, and you might remember um, that the belt of truth is central. Right? It's central not only in regards to where it's located on our body, but it's also central in regards to um, and in respect to all the other pieces of armor. If you don't have the truth in all the other pieces of armor, falls apart. It's called a chink in your armor, right? A weak spot. And I think the work of the Holy Spirit in this text and in these sermons is to help us identify where those weak places are and then stand firm in the strength of the Lord. Agreed? So the truth that we talked about last week is very important. Every piece of the armor that we're going to study through is embodied in and held together by the person and the work of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary and the empty tomb. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the perfect Word of God manifested in the flesh. In Christ, we have the bodily manifestation of the truth of who God is and how God wants to interact and does interact with humanity. <coughs> and then all of that culminates in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. God is the one who supplies the armor, clothes us in the armor, and empowers us to actually wear the armor. We do not supply the armor. We do not even necessarily put on the armor. We certainly do not have the strength to stand in the armor or wear it well. The truth, I think, I think this truth that I'm talking about, that it's not about us and our own self-sufficiency, it's actually about God and his sufficiency, I think that that truth becomes more and more clear throughout the context of this passage, especially when you contemplate your slavery to self-sufficiency. Right? This is something that I struggle with. I was raised and taught to tough it out, to do this on my own. This is actually, if you want to think about this in terms of our American heritage, uh, this is actually so deeply ingrained in our psyche, um, I, I think it's easy for us to miss and be deceived on this. Like, this is who we are as Americans. We do this, right? It's way too easy for me to believe the lie that I have the ability within myself somewhere to actually stand and fight. So the truth of the gospel teaches me that I am not self-sufficient. I am a sinful and broken and fearful and prideful person at my core. I am utterly helpless. I am incapable of supplying or putting on or standing firm in the armor of God on my own. And this truth like it has to resonate with every one of us as you think about it. Think about your own individual journey. Like, in my individual journey, I make truth relative so that I can control my circumstances. I try to earn God's favor because I believe that he is either disengaged or that he's out to get me. I base my peace on circumstances, and then I turn God into my errand boy. I turn faith into something that I can actually create or muster up somehow by my ability and then in so doing that, I limit God's ability. I make salvation into an experience rather than a lifestyle. I, I make God's word into a list of rules. Or I make it a handbook for getting my best life now. And then prayer, like we talked about last week in my life, 
oftentimes becomes just a means for me to get what I want. And I turn God into a vending machine that I drop a little bit of coin in. When I don't get what I want, I go find a different vending machine. These realities in my spiritual journey um, have got to mirror yours in some ways too. But these realities in our spiritual journey are meant for something. They're not useless. There's a purpose to our lives. And one of the things that I think about when I read the scriptures, when I read this passage, is I think about how these experiences of my own lack of sufficiency and God's complete sufficiency and the tension between how I walk that out. When I think about that, I think that my experience of that is meant to shape us. It's meant to shape my head, my heart, and my hands with the knowledge of the gospel. What I believe and what I desire and how I live is meant to be shaped by the experience of living this life. And the gospel informs my mind and informs my heart and informs my life that I am utterly helpless to do what God has called me to do and that where I recognize that, in those places where I recognize that I am utterly helpless to do what God calls me to do, I can trust that Christ has already done it. So the gospel, the gospel doesn't teach us to come to Christ by faith and then somehow secure my ongoing relationship with God through my works of the flesh. The gospel does not teach me that or teach you that. The gospel actually teaches us that, that when we come to Christ, we come to him as helpless people. We come to him as helpless people who find security in what? Not our works, but in his work. We find security in Christ's finished work at the cross and the empty tomb. And that reality, that truth, that belief then transforms what our heads believe and transforms what our hearts desire and transforms what our hands perform. Now the background of this, what I'm doing is I'm laying a background for us to think about this passage, right? The background of the gospel is important to us. Why? Because it brings out the beauty of what Paul is actually saying here in these verses. Look at verses 14 through 16. Again, Paul says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In these verses, we have a list, right, of different pieces of armor. At the belt of truth, which we dealt with last week, then you had the breastplate of righteousness, shoes of peace, and the shield of faith. Um, and what I want us to do is I want us to think about and I want us to apply the last three in the list. Um, in a few moments, but I want us to apply those against the background of the message of the gospel. So keep the message of the gospel front and center in your mind as we dive in. Please do not forget even for a second that God created you and I to be with him. But then in the midst of all of that, sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, and that sin actually infected all of mankind. There's only been one that was perfect, and that was Jesus. He's the only one who was able to live the perfect life. That sin entered into the world, and that sin that we are all infected with, like a disease that is 
massively contagious. That sin separates us from God who loves us and the God who created us. And that separation cannot be undone by us. You and I do not have the ability to come into God's presence on our own. We cannot fix or heal this problem of sin in us because we're broken. It took somebody who is perfect. All of our sin cannot be made right by our good works, but Jesus died. Jesus, the lamb, the perfect lamb of God, came and was given as a sacrifice and a ransom for all who would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And he died, and he rose again, and he left the tomb empty, signifying his power over Satan's sin and the grave so that he could give each and every one of us, if you're a believer in him, the gift of faith so that by grace, through faith, we could experience an eternal life with him. That's the message of the gospel, right? Don't forget the message of the gospel as we examine the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, and the shield of faith. And I say this because I think that every piece of this armor that Paul is instructing us to take a stand in, I think it's kind of like a little piece of pie, which um, is appropriate for this time of year. Because I love pie, and Thanksgiving is right around the corner. I think every piece of pie is like, or every piece of armor is like a piece of pie. It's meant to whet our appetite for more of Jesus, the one who is our armor. So that says, dive into the first piece. Number one, the breastplate of righteousness. Right, this is the first piece we want to examine today. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, it covers our hearts. Okay, I want you to get that in your head. Uh, In a physical battle, uh, warriors are trained to go after the head and the heart. Those are the two places that warriors are trained to go after. Why? Because those are kill shots. You want to take somebody out? You want to kill them? You want to get them out of the battle? Get their head or get their heart? The Bible uses the heart all throughout. In kind of a metaphorical sense, symbolic sense almost, as the center of our desires and our affections, okay? The heart, I want you to think about this, and I don't, don't, please don't lose this piece. The heart is where the want to is located. All the things that you want are located in your heart. Now, here's the problem. Because of sin, something called the got to has entered into your want to, and it's infected it, okay? So keep that in mind. So where the want to is and the got to infects your want to. Our hearts are like deceitful little pleasure centers. Our hearts are like deceitful little pleasure centers. Uh, when something feels good, you've heard me say this before too, if it feels good, if it looks good, if it tastes good, sounds good, smells good, what happens? And your heart leaps, right? Your heart leaps with an overwhelming sense of pleasure. God designed us this way. Made us this way, created us this way, created us with an appetite for pleasure. So alternatively, if you look at it from the other point of view too, when something doesn't feel good, something's painful, doesn't look good, doesn't taste good, doesn't sound good, doesn't smell good, then what happens to your heart? Your heart begins to hunger and thirst for something else that you what? You just got to have. And do you see how the got to infects the want to? And this is what happens when we make created things into ultimate things. Things like relationships, 
our belongings, money, power, success, status. When we make those things into ultimate things, we exchange the worship of our perfect creator for the worship of broken creation. Let's not forget, when we're talking about worship, Satan was the worship leader of heaven. He was the worship leader of heaven. He was designed to lead all of heaven in the worship of our creator, but because of his pride, because of his desire to get the attention himself, he sought to turn all of heaven and ultimately all of creation against its creator through what? Self-worship. Ultimately, all of worship that is not directed towards God is legitimately rooted in self-worship. It's the worship of self. And when Satan goes after our hearts, what's he doing? He's going in for the kill shot. When he goes after your want to and helps to taint your want to with a got to, he's going in for the kill shot. He's seeking to entice your heart to desire something, anything outside of Christ. Anything outside of Christ that he can get you to desire, to want, to got to have. He's not a weak adversary. We've been at this for at least a few thousand years longer than you and I have even thought about being alive. He's sneaky. He's deceptive. For one person, when Satan comes to go in for the kill shot for one person, just an all-out assault of perversion and pornographic images, that's all Satan needs to strike a kill shot to the heart through the desire for intimacy. For another person, the enticement of bettering their credit score. That's all that's needed for Satan to strike a kill shot to the heart through its desire underneath of that for self-sufficiency. For another person, the temptation to say yes to too many good things. It's all that's needed to strike a kill shot to the heart through its desire for self-promotion. The list could go on and on. The way that Satan does this is sneaky, and it's, he's good at it. And you and I are blind to it often. There are a myriad of different ways that Satan comes after our hearts, right? Loneliness, despair, anger, arrogance, mistrust, jealousy, hurt. These are all ways, they're all a variety of ways that Satan seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy the image of God in you and I. When Satan comes after your heart to infect your want to with a got to, he's going in for a kill shot. And what you and I need in the midst of this war is a rock solid piece of armor, right? We need a piece of armor that will protect us. I need a piece of armor that will, that will not be dependent upon my performance because if it's dependent upon my performance, man, it's hopeless, right? You got no hope if this is dependent upon yours or mine's performance. We need a piece of armor that cannot be penetrated by Satan's attacks. We need a piece of armor that is secure and dependable like a rock-solid anchor in the midst of a storm. That's what we need. 
And this is where the breastplate of righteousness has been supplied to us. And I use the word supplied intentionally. The word supplied is a key word. Our righteousness, or you could say our right standing um, with God, our ability to come into his presence. We are imperfect He is perfect and holy, righteous and just. And if we were to come into his presence based upon our own ability and our own performance, what would happen? Poof, get burned up. That's what would happen. Our ability to come into his presence and not be burned up is based on his work, based on his finished work at the cross. Jesus is the one who supplies our right standing with God. And not only that, but he also clothes us in our right standing. He also enables us to wear the new clothing of our right standing. This is the work that Jesus does at the cross. Here's the truth. The truth is that you and I are not the hero of the message of the gospel. You and I are not the point of the message of the gospel. It is not you or I in our ability to take a stand. The hero of the story of the gospel is Jesus Christ and all of his ability, and all of his sufficiency, and all of his power. That's the hero of the story of the gospel. In my weakness is when I actually am made strong in the righteousness of the Lord. And according to the psalmist in Psalm 4.1, we can all call upon the God of our righteousness for relief in our distress. See, in our fight against Satan and sin and the world that we live in, the thing that actually gives me hope You go back to the passage that Andrew read today from Psalm 42, one of my favorite passages of all time. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, right? The theme that actually gives me hope in the midst of the troubles of this life is this truth that God himself, through the cross and through the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, is my righteousness. That's what gives me hope. Did you walk in today lacking hope for some reason or another? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Your hope can rest in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Now Paul, <clears throat> in Philippians, speaking of righteousness, he says, uh, and this is Philippians 3, 8 through 10, which I don't think I have on the screen, but Paul says, and I count everything I've ever done right Go ahead and make your list real fast of things you did right this week. I count everything that I've ever done right as a piece of garbage. Why would Paul say that? He moves on, so that I might gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from performing or obeying the law, but instead a perfect righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the kind of righteousness from God that depends on faith so that I would know Christ and the power of his resurrection so that I might share in the suffering of Christ. Interesting. Share in the suffering of Christ? Uh, Who wants to talk about sharing in someone's suffering? None of us. Left to our own. So I might share in the suffering of Christ and in so doing become like Christ in his death and resurrection. Powerful passage on righteousness. In a long story short, you study the theme of righteousness uh, throughout the Bible consistently. What will happen is you'll get led to this truth that you are incapable of being righteous in God's eyes because the standard of righteousness is perfection. 
And there is only one who is perfect, and that is Christ, God himself. And the good news is that God the Father gave Jesus his one and only son to die on a cross so that you and I could receive his perfect righteousness through faith in not our works, but in his finished work at the cross. We find our righteousness in his finished work at the cross rather than finding it in the filthy garbage rags of our performance and our works. This is the kind of good news that reminds me that I am actually at peace with my Father. This brings me to the second piece of armor, right? The shoes of the gospel of peace. You see, the shoes of the gospel of peace cover our feet as we walk. That's what they do. Oftentimes, preachers want to make this into a big fat action package of go share your faith. Ah, there's a problem with that kind of interpretation. There's an implication there. Don't hear me wrong. There's an implication that we do need to be sharing our faith. Uh, But when you make this piece of the armor all about that, you miss something that's really beautiful. Because that's a secondary uh, meaning or application, you might say. There's a primary meaning and there's applications. And the primary meaning here is that where Every one of us, where where I walked as an enemy of the cross of Christ, I now walk as an adopted child of the living God. Think of the themes of Ephesians. Sit, walk, stand. Now apply the theme of walk to the shoes of peace and the way that you and I walk out our lives. Where I once walked as a child of destruction and my life was destructive, Now, because of the cross of Christ, I have been transformed into a messenger of the gospel. I am at peace with my heavenly Father. Why? Because He made a way for me to come into His presence as a redeemed and priceless child through the very cross that I was an enemy of. Jesus died for me when I was living like a son of disobedience so that I could be transformed into His image as a son of perfect obedience, and this truth is yours too if you've trusted in Christ. The Bible teaches us, I love this passage. Remember when I was a children's minister and we would sing this psalm with the kids, and I won't sing it for you because I don't want to ruin the moment for you. This passage in Romans 16.20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath my feet. That's a promise. That's a promise that you can hang on to. That's a promise you can take to the bank in every circumstance. This promise that Satan will be crushed underneath our feet as we what? Walk out the gospel of peace. That truth, that promise, it hinges on the truth that it is God Himself that does the crushing. And He did it through the cross and the empty tomb. It is God Himself through the message of the Gospel that crushes Satan underneath our feet. You see, the Gospel of peace, we are transformed from people who are running, walking, running. I say running, not often walking, but actually running headlong off the cliffs of our sin in our despair and our despondency. And he changed us and transforms us through the gospel into people who are clinging to the cross of Christ with all that we've got. And in that gospel, our feet are made ready. 
for action. The gospel is what enables us to be aware of and alert to and ready for the attacks of Satan as he comes to make war against our heads, our hearts, and our hands. Now, you might have walked into this building today living in fear, or maybe you came in living in despair. Maybe you came in living in complacency, or maybe you're just living in pride-filled arrogance. The truth that I pray would penetrate your heart and your mind is this truth that the good news of Jesus Christ is not go and do. The truth of the good news of Jesus Christ that creates real peace inside of us and actually gives us the attitude whereby we can stand firm in an attitude of peace. That attitude, that reality is found in the message that what you can never do, Christ has done for you. This message creates the kind of peace that actually enables me to lift up the shield of faith that has been supplied to me. And that's the last piece, number three. The shield of faith. Now, the shield of faith deflects flaming arrows from our enemy. Paul says, in every circumstance, we're to hold up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Satan is a crafty schemer. He's an enemy. He comes at you from every which direction. Ever have that feeling some days where it's like, crap, it's just like everywhere. Right? He comes at you from every direction. If he can't get you by enticing you to ignore God with little red bubbles, notifications on your cell phone, then he'll attempt to get to you through the hurtful words of a friend. Can't get to you through the devastating loss of a loved one, he will attempt to get to you through the enticement of an inappropriate relationship. If he can't get to you through the temptation of compulsive spending on the one hand, then he'll get to you through the temptation of just hoarding your wealth all for yourself. He's a schemer. He just comes at you from every different direction. Ultimately, Satan will do anything in his power to coerce you into placing your trust in created things rather than the creator himself. Any created thing that you place your trust in, and it's so deceptive, especially for those of us that have been walking with Jesus for longer than 15 minutes. Because now we have a religious construct to build up everything that we do. And I'm, I would argue that Satan's probably one of the most religious people out there. When he comes to you, he, he breathes lies and he just takes a little bit of truth, weaves in a little bit of deception into it. It's hard for us to tell. What Satan wants is he wants you to believe that God is actually incapable of meeting your needs. He wants you to believe that God cannot push you across the tightrope in a wheelbarrow over the deep caverns of your sin or your fear or your desires. He wants to diminish the power of the cross and the empty tomb in your life by turning your attention away from God onto the circumstances of your life. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what circumstances you walked in here facing. I know many of you in this room, but I don't know what's going on deep down inside of your hearts. I don't know if you're overcome with worry or doubt or despair or fear or insecurity or depression or anger or hurt. I don't know. But I do know this. 
The circumstances of your life were meant by Satan for your harm and your destruction, but God means it for your good and his glory. And it's not the kind of good that is found in the false gospels we hear all over America today. I'm not talking about your best life now. <clears throat> I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity and all your American dreams coming true. We have transported an American reality into the gospel, and that, that's a problem. It doesn't fit the book of Acts. Because you know when the church grew the most? It's when it came under persecution. Not... I'm not saying come follow Jesus and trust in him and all of your pain and all of your suffering will go away. Jesus doesn't promise you new cars, great marriages of the person of your dreams, bigger houses, or better friendships. That's not the message of the gospel. That's an anti-gospel. It's an antithetical gospel. It's a false gospel. The promise of the gospel is that as you follow Jesus, he will be with you. As you follow Jesus, all of the things in this life that you once counted as nearest and dearest to you will become like garbage in light of his surpassing grace and presence. All of the things in this life, in this fleshly realm that you have desired, all of the things inside of you that have turned your want-tos into got-tos, and you now begun to worship those things, all of those things will become less in light of Christ, in light of gaining the eternal presence of Christ. You see, Jesus is the author and perfecter of real faith. He is the only object worth placing your faith in. And listen, a small amount of faith in a great big God is bigger than a big amount of faith in a false God. That's why the church lacks power today. Because oftentimes Christians have a big amount of faith in a false God. So holding up the shield of faith is much less about you and I and our ability to, to hold it up. It's much more about the object of who our faith actually is. See, if the object of my faith is me and my ability, then my faith is broken and useless, and I will live in fear and shame and guilt and worry and despair and reckless living to try to prove that I'm none of those things. And I do that because my right standing with God will be dependent upon me keeping a list of do's and don'ts. And here's the thing. Satan's been having a heyday with that false gospel of moralism and performance for thousands of years. And in conclusion, this is why Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. See, Paul, when he wrote this, he was one of the most vocal enemies of the false gospel of moralism and performance and works. He had experienced true freedom from the bondage of Satan's lies through a radical, real, authentic encounter with the risen Christ. Paul knew what it meant to have his heart covered in a righteousness that was not his own. 
And he knew what it it meant to walk in the readiness of the gospel of peace. And he, he knew what it meant to believe in and to trust in Christ's finished work at the cross and the empty tomb. He knew that the message of the gospel of Christ's righteousness and Christ's peace and faith in Christ was not centered on what you and I need to go and do, but instead is actually centered on what Christ has done. He knew this. It's why he wrote this. What he wanted for the Ephesians is what God wants for you and I. Christ has won your righteousness. Christ has made peace between you and your Father in heaven. If you're following Jesus today, then he has written the book of faith upon your brand new heart. You can stand with a new attitude of security and an attitude of boldness in the knowledge that Christ has supplied your every need. He has clothed you in himself. He has given himself to you as the object of faith. And you can now take a stand in this present darkness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this word today. And uh, I ask, Father, that you would come now and continue to apply it to our hearts and our lives as we close in worship, as we look to the cross of Christ, and as we remember again your work at the cross where your body was broken and your blood was shed. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.